In preparation for the hearing of the word tonight, we'll begin by uh, reading the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 26. It's found in the back of your hymnals as well as on page 140, uh, excuse me, 228, page 228 of the Forms and Prayers book. And it's also on page 883 of the hymnal, of the Psalter hymnal. All right, there are, we've got questions 69, 70, and 71. I'll read the question, and then we'll read the answer responsively. Number 69, how does holy baptism remind and assure you that Christ's one sacrifice on the cross benefits you personally? In this way, Christ instituted this outward washing and with it promised that as surely as water washes away the dirt from the body, so certainly his blood and his spirit wash away my soul's impurity, that is, all my sins. Number 70, what does it mean to be washed with Christ's blood and spirit? To be washed with Christ's blood means that God, by grace, has forgiven our sins because of Christ's blood poured out for us in the sacrifice on the cross. To be washed with Christ's spirit means that the Holy Spirit has renewed and sanctified us to be members of Christ so that more and more we die to sin and live holy and blameless lives. Where does Christ promise that we are washed with his blood and spirit as surely as we are washed with the water of baptism? In the institution of baptism, where he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. This promise is repeated when Scripture calls baptism the washing of regeneration and the washing away of sins. We have two scripture readings tonight. The the first is from the New Testament, 1 Corinthians um, chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. And 17 through 20 are two sections there. This is God's word. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, 
nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Continuing on over to verse 17. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Then we move to the Old Testament reading, which is Second uh, Chronicles chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Second Chronicles 4, 1 through 6. This is referencing the, um, the building of the temple, and when it talks about he, we're talking, it's referencing Solomon, King Solomon. He made an altar of bronze, 20 cubits long and 20 cubits wide and 10 cubits high. Then he made the sea of cast metal. It was round, 10 cubits from brim to brim and 5 cubits high, and a line of 30 cubits measured its circumference. Under it were figures of gourds for ten cubits, compassing the sea all around. The gourds were in two rows, cast with it when it was cast. It stood on twelve oxen, three facing north, three facing west, three facing south, and three facing east. The sea was set on them, and all their rear parts were inward. Its thickness was a handbreadth, and its brim was made like a brim of a cup, like a flower of a lily. It held 3,000 baths. He also made 10 basins in which to wash and set five on the south side and five on the north side. In these were to rinse off what was used for the burnt offering, and the sea was for the priests to wash in. Keep your Bibles open in Second Chronicles 4. That will be our primary consideration this evening. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, baptism especially points to the one-time saving work of God in the lives of his people. When God saves us, we are washed. We are made clean. The blood of Christ is that which has a cleansing power which is forever and immediately effectual. And so the image of baptism 
is a sign to be completed once in a person's life. It is primarily a sign of what the Apostle calls in Titus chapter 3, the washing of regeneration. For this reason and for others, when we look back at the Old Testament, we see the connection especially between the one-time sign of baptism and the one-time sign of circumcision. But while we should primarily think about the one-time washing, we know that even as God's people, we will struggle against sin as long as we are on this earth. And there are also scriptural images, there are also Old Testament ceremonies which were tied to washing and which were repeated signs. And this also has has something to do with baptism. We could look, for example, at the end of question and answer 70, when after speaking about what it means to be washed with Christ's blood, what it means to be washed with Christ's spirit, it also says this, under the washing with the spirit, so to be, so that more and more we die to sin and live a holy and blameless lives. So brothers and sisters, we're thinking especially about, about that image that is not the most direct, but is tied to the washing of baptism and to the repeated washings in the Old Testament temple and to the need that we have to the ongoing purpose in our lives to be washed, to be renewed, to more and more be cleansed into the image of God. And so in this way, the sea in the temple is the sea behind the seal of baptism. In this way, uh, these Old Testament ceremonies also teach us something about the cleansing with water and the New Testament sign. And so this evening, brothers and sisters, our theme is this. See the bronze sea and contemplate the waterworks in your own soul. The waterworks in your own soul. Our three points, symbolic, promissory water, practical, orderly water, and then important, costly water. Now, brothers and sisters, when we think about the temple, the first word that we might think of is the word blood. And there is so much blood in the temple. And there is more than one altar. And there's all the places for all the different sacrifices and the different uses tied to the, to the different ones and the different times of year and all of these things. There was much spilling of blood in the temple. But there was also much water. Water is a dominant image in God's temple. We look at the bronze sea, the sea of cast metal, first mentioned in verse 2 of our text. And this is literally a huge image. It could hold, verse 5, 3,000 baths. That's about 17,500 gallons. Now we'll speak more about this size as we get to our second point, but for now... Let us consider that there is not only much blood in the temple, there is also much water. There is much water. The water and the blood together in the temple are inseparable. There must be each of these. To neglect either one is to 
completely go against the commandments of God. It is to, in the Old Testament dispensation, to stand in, in, in just judgment, to rightly be condemned to death. Exodus chapter 30 is the place where the smaller bronze basin of the tabernacle in the wilderness is described, but it has the same purpose uh, later in the sea in the temple, and it has the same ceremonial laws and punishments tied to it. And so in Exodus 30, verse 20 and 21, we hear this about how important, how essential the image of water in the temple and before that, the tabernacle was. Exodus chapter 30, beginning at verse 20. When they go into the tent of meeting, or when they come near the altar to minister, to burn a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash with water so that they may not die. They shall wash their hands and their feet so that they may not die. It shall be a statute forever to them, even to him and to his, to his offspring, that is to uh, Aaron, and to his offspring throughout their generations. Blood and water are both essential in God's temple. And so there is even the penalty of death when this would be disregarded by the Old Testament priests. But it is not just the penalty of death, but also the blessing of life, which we must see. And so uh, as we come to this great sea in the temple, we see what surrounds it and the decorations that are all around it, including all of the gourds and the plants that are uh, decorations around the huge bronze sea. We see this in chapter 4, verse 3. And like many other pictures in the temple, this imagery had a purpose of pointing us back to the very good, curse-free life in the Garden of Eden. There were many images that brought us back to that image of life, and the images surrounding the Bronze Sea are no exception to that. And then the sea itself. What is, what is this sea? It is, a, it is a calm sea. There's no waves in this huge sea in the temple. It is a picture of peace, of calmness, of life. And then those images uh, are even behind the primary image. The primary image is clean, clean, cleanness and life. When we think about clean and unclean in the Old Testament and uh, the the difference between clean and unclean is detailed in a whole variety of ways tied to many different things. And, and sometimes sometimes it's not so direct. Sometimes it's tied to the uh, diseases of skin and other things, and it's, and it's very much symbolic language. Well, here it is, it is symbolic language, but it's also wonderfully straightforward. Here it is wonderfully straightforward. What is clean? What is unclean? Well, here the symbolic clean and unclean is literally go and wash your dirty hands, go and wash your dirty feet. The sea, verse 6, was for the priests to wash in. Children from a young age, do you even learn that you use water to wash away 
the dirt. Clean and unclean in the Old Testament. It teaches us many different things in many different ways. Here it's very straightforward imagery. The dirt is washed away with the water. And then the the uh, essential connection of both blood and water comes together. Look at the beginning of verse 6 into the middle. There, The water, specifically the water in the basins, was used to rinse off what was used for the burnt offering. And so the cleaning was for the priests who be prepared to give the offering with clean hands. The cleaning was so that the sacrifice itself would be clean. It was it was cleaned with water. And so in this way, the, the blood and the water of the temple come together. And again, this is not just a picture of death, the death of sacrifice. It's the picture of ultimately life through death. It's the promise. It's the anticipation of the one perfectly clean sacrifice. The one perfectly sinless sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The sacrifice which gives life through death. And so uh, we can consider uh, the language of cleanness, the language of looking to Christ, and the language of life as it is given to us by uh, John in 1 John chapter 1, verses 7 to 9. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. We say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is promissory water. It anticipates the one perfect, the one clean, without sin, sacrifice, the death, that gives life. There is blood in the temple. There is water in the temple. They're tied together and they both anticipate the promised Savior who cleanses us, brothers and sisters, from our sins. Well, this is also practical water. It's orderly water. It's not only tied to the promise, it also has a very practical purpose. The Old Testament ceremonies are a bloody mess. It's a bloody mess. But is it only a mess? There's also all kinds of water in the temple. It is not a mess that's just left a mess. There are thousands and thousands and thousands of gallons of water the sea, as we mentioned, has the capacity to hold 17,500 gallons of water. We know from the parallel text in 1 Kings chapter 7 that they didn't fill it to capacity. They only put about 12,000 gallons into it. And then we also have in much more detail the, the smaller basins. You see the ten basins in Second Chronicles 4 verse 6. He made also ten basins in which to wash. Well, these take a back seat to the great sea 
but they're described in much detail in the parallel text in 1 Kings 7. And you know how much water these smaller basins held? The smaller basins each held about 200 gallons of water. Now think about trying to lift 200 gallons of water. That's almost 2,000 pounds of water in each basin. But they're described in more detail in 1 Kings chapter 7. And they were on movable, beautifully decorated trolleys and wheels so that they could go all around the temple wherever they needed to go. That's the ten smaller basins. You have this huge sea. You have these ten smaller basins, each with 200 gallons on their own. There is, there is a practical purpose going on here. There is a bloody mess in the temple, but there is a lot of water, not only filling promissory and symbolic purposes, but also practically cleaning up the mess in a very orderly way. Now, there's also details which are not in the text, neither here nor in the parallel in 1 Kings 7. We might ask, well, what happens to that big great sea? Does it, uh, wouldn't the water get, get very dirty? Well, probably it would over time. According to Alfred Edersheim, he was a learned Jew. He converted to Christianity. He became a, a British minister and scholar in the 1800s. According to Edersheim, they emptied that sea every day and refilled it every day. Even if they did not quite do that much, we know that Solomon built uh, pools, Ecclesiastes 2 verse 6. We know that Hezekiah, the faithful king, after him did much to expand the waterworks of Jerusalem. They, they had, we should think of it not just as a standing pool, but there is, there is a whole system here. There's a whole waterworks. This is probably almost more like a replenished fountain than it is just a standing pool. And so now let's take the fact that we've got details not in the text, but that uh, should be implied that the Israelites knew about a whole waterworks system. We've got all these movable basins moving all around. We have this great sea, especially for the priests to wash in. It is huge. And now, brothers and sisters, let us begin to apply this very personally by thinking about the waterworks in our soul. We have the promise of salvation in Jesus Christ. As we look to him, our Savior, how are we now living? You all are a temple of the Holy Spirit. What does your temple look like? What is the waterworks system in the temple of your heart and mind? And how does it combat the dirty sinfulness of your own nature, of this sin-cursed world? What do we do with our dirty hands when we sin? What do we do with our dirty feet when we 
walk to sin? What do we do with the very thoughts of our mind? Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. Apostle speaks about striving towards the goal, speaks about how we are to walk. We read this in Philippians 4, verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, If there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. We're called to have clean hands. We're called to have clean feet. We're called to have a clean mind as God's people. We had a parallel, we had a support reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I almost did 2 Corinthians chapter 6, where we also have the language of temple, and it leads to 2 Corinthians 7 verse 1. Since we have these promises, beloved, Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Your hands, your feet, your very mind. What is the waterworks of the temple in your very heart? What does it look like? And do you have practical systems to fight the dirtiness of sin? Do you have set times for prayer? Like the great sea in the temple, everybody knew where it was. You didn't have to go looking for it. Is there perhaps a set time for prayer in your day, in your life, that acts like the great sea? I'm going to come before the Lord. I'm going to confess my sins. I must be cleansed. Do you have movable trolleys so that when impure thoughts and desires are coming into your heart and mind, you have movable trolleys working around the heart of your temple cleaning the dirt and the stains as they come? Or do you allow sinful thoughts and attitudes to fester? Do you say, it's no big deal. I can follow this line of thinking. Brothers and sisters, We must constantly seek to scrub the dirt of sins and sinful thinking away. We are called to have an extensive waterworks in our soul. 
Your body is a temple. Since we have these promises, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit. Practically used, constantly used, daily patterns. The very way that we see water used in the temple can inform us, can challenge us in our own spiritual lives from, and patterns from day to day. And in all of this, in all of this, the promises must be kept in front of us because brothers and sisters, as is the common illustration, the illustration I shared with the catechism class this morning. You know, what, what would happen if the very thoughts of your mind were turned into a movie and it was played before everyone else? It would not go well for us. We do not cleanse ourselves completely anything like we should. And so let it always come back to the promises. Let it always come back to the one-time washing, which is perfect to be washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. Well, brothers and sisters, let's come then towards our third point. This is important. This is costly water. This is the giving of your best to the Lord. This bronze sea, it was huge, it was beautiful, it was costly. Now, let's, uh, let's think even just about the size as it relates to cost for a moment. Because, I mean, maybe if you like, think a lot about outdoor pools, you hear something like you know, 17,000 gallon capacity and you think, well, that's, you know, that's all right, but you know, I, I've jumped in pools that are bigger than that. Uh, I don't even have to go to the community pool to find a pool bigger than that. I've maybe had a couple of friends in my life with a pool that's bigger than that. You know, so this is this is how how big is this sea of water in the temple? But brothers and sisters, we should not just be thinking about a huge pool fountain of water that's about the size of some of the outdoor pools that you might walk past in your neighborhood on any given Tuesday. We're talking about a huge pool made of cast metal around 1000 BC. This was a huge, costly achievement. This was no small thing. Uh, maybe, uh, maybe you've heard something of the history of the. Uh, uh, of the Liberty Bell in Philadelphia. Now, uh, it, it has to be struck, and so that's something that's more difficult than making a huge cast metal C. Uh, but if you look at the history, you would, you would see that uh, the first one they made, it broke. The second one they made, it broke. The one that currently has the big famous crack in it, that's the third one they made. It is not easy to make a huge, rounded, cast metal object. And so there's even many verses about the craftsmen who came in 
to uh, for this project, and that's detailed in chapter two of Second Chronicles. Uh, this was no small project. This was huge. This was costly, and it's beautiful. Look at verse five. It's decorated. Not just we don't just have gourds, uh, these plant images around it. Verse three. We also have the sea itself shaped around the brim like the flower of a lily. Do you see that in verse 5? This was a huge, costly, and beautiful object. And then again, there's less here about the the ten basins that are moving around, but those are described in, in 1 Kings 7, and they had their own beauty and intricacy and design tied to it. And so here we have a, a costly, uh, costly object. And thinking about the whole cost of the whole project in 1 Kings 7, verse 47, speaking about all of the bronze in the temple put together, the parallel text there says all of the bronze put together could not be weighed. This was a giving of your first fruits. This was a giving of your best to the Lord. Now, do we always give our best to the Lord? And we can even take illustrations uh, from the sea in the temple to think about uh, specific times when the best was not given to the Lord. And so wicked King Ahaz, about 250 years after this temple was built, goes through the temple and he sees this huge cast iron bronze or this huge cast metal bronze sea and he sees that it is resting on these 12 huge bronze bowls that represent the 12 tribes of Israel and he says well I've got to pay a lot of tribute and if I keep the sea then I'm still keeping something for God right So he takes the bronze sea off of its beautiful bronze bases, sets it on a stone pedestal, and breaks down the bronze bowls, and doesn't tell us exactly in 2 Kings 16, but it's it's strongly uh, implied in the reading of the chapter that he uses the bronze bowls to pay off his taxes. And then... What is the response of unbelief? What is the response of unbelief? When we would speak about the Christian calling to trust in the promise of Jesus Christ and then entrusting him to seek to be sanctified in our very thoughts before God, What is the response of unbelief? The response of unbelief is just to break apart the sea of cleansing and to say, there is no need for this. So when the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, come into the temple, they break apart the bronze sea and carry it off in pieces back to Babylon. And so now, once again, let's come back to the temple of our own hearts and minds. And let's say, do you give your best to the Lord? 
Do you come to the Lord when when your mind is sharp? Do you come to the Lord with all of your strength? Do you come when it is costly? And do you do you see that you should seek to in the beauty of holiness give all that you have to the Lord? Or are there times when in the fight against the dirt of sin you say, well, if I just keep this, then I'm doing well enough. I can get rid of, or I don't have to worry about fighting against that. I can get rid of the bowls as long as I keep the big sea that holds the water, right? The temple of my soul doesn't need to give everything to the Lord. Brothers and sisters, these are symbolic pictures that teach us about God, who God is, what God has done. They are symbolic pictures that we can use to think about the temple of our own hearts and minds, our own body, our own offering to God as his people. More and more, the end again, question answer 70, do you seek to serve the Lord with the best that you have? And now, again, as we have said, when we consider these things and these images, we must come back to the promise we must come back to where the symbol first points. The only clean one, Jesus Christ. The washing in the temple of Solomon should have been, and in some ways was, a giving of the best that they had. It should have also been a constant and practical purpose. There is daily washing in the temple. But it should never have been just going through the motions. It must always come back to the promise and the promised one, Jesus Christ. And so, brothers and sisters, may it be in the temple of our souls that first, by faith, we would see the promises which are ours in Jesus Christ who has washed us with the very washing of regeneration as we repent and trust in him. And then let us be cleaning out the dirt of sin in our lives in a daily and orderly, practical way. Let us do this cleaning with the best that we have. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you.